0: Well, in the events and circumstances of our lives, we have decisions and choices to make. And whether we realize it or not, we are accountable for the choices that we make. I mean, it's just the bottom line. is be not deceived, God has not mocked whatever man sows that she also reap. Whatever you put in, you're going to get out. All people, really, on one hand, we decide we can decide what's right or wrong. Prof. Hendricks used to say that even as Christians, when we come down to issues, and sometimes we'll say, well, I'm my issues are not always right and wrong because I know that's wrong and I know this is right. Prophets say, well, then your issues might be what's good and what's best. And we're accountable for what we do. Our society really wants to blame uh, anyone or anything else uh, when something happens. If a person smokes for 40 years and gets cancer, they want to blame the cigarette company. If somebody's in trouble with the law, they want to blame their their parents or the school or their environment. If someone has sexual relations and gets a venereal disease, they say, I want to just blame my partner. We're all accountable for the choices that we make. We can live a life based on the Word of God or a life based on the pull of this world the word or the world. Well this evening Abram makes some choices. He makes a choice to go to war. He, he doesn't have to go to war. We're going to see what he does. He has to trust God in the battle and to deal correctly with two kings when he comes back. And we're going to see Abram's choices and why. And in of course in this passage as we studied, and we read it a while ago there's a war. A group of kings invade the promised land and they wipe out some cities. Some city states there the, the little city states and they take Abram's lot, a nephew Lot, into captive. What is Abram going to do? What would he do? Well he could could say, well, you know, he knew that when he made a decision to move over there, it could have happened to him. What will he do? Well. We're going to see his choices. Let's break down the passage uh, so you can see how it fits. First of all, the verses 1 through 12 is the war. The land is invaded. And then 13 through 16, Abram or Abraham, we've got a list as Abraham there, but it's Abram rescues Lot. He makes the choice to go and trust God to do that. And then the last part, and we're only going to look, we're, we're going to actually get to verses 17 and 18 just and stop right there and get the rest of it next week. But he meets two kings in verses 17 through 24. There's a choice. One brings blessing, one brings possessions. And we'll think about what happens. We meet a king called Melchizedek. And we'll talk about who this is. A lot of people get real confused about the man. He's listed only four, three or four places in the Bible as a whole. And we're going to see who he is and what he's done. Be a lot more details on him next week. Well, tonight, the war. And we'll stop at verse 18. Let's remember where we are. Last time, the separation of Abram and Lot, strife between the herdsmen. Abram was so wealthy and Lot was wealthy as well. And there was just so much there, they, they couldn't even get along with each other. And so they made a decision. Lot gave, Abram gave Lot the choice and said, you Just go. Whichever direction you go, if you go that way, I'll go this way. And so Lot saw this well-watered plain of the Jordan down there, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was before God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it looked like a great place to live. But we already know, if you look back at chapter 13, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. People knew that. So uh, Lot's going to go live in a place where there's a lot of bad people, a lot of people doing wrong stuff. And they know they're doing wrong stuff. And, you know, when we study it a little bit later, we'll get further over into what happened to these people and we see that there was a lot of sexual perversion there, a lot of things going wrong and, and you know, here's Lot, he goes down there and if you're not careful before you know it, you, you say, well I don't like all this before you know it, you're just in the midst of it well, let's get a little background starting at verse 1, a brief overview of the history of what's going on uh, we list, there's four kings here it came about in the days of Amraphel king of Sinar, Ariok king of Elasar; Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goa. Now he lists these four people, four kings. They're from north of the land most likely. They're from north of Damascus that area. They're leaders of people these are leaders of people groups and their armies. He goes on and says that they made war with Bera king of Sodom and Brishka, king of Gomorrah, and Sinab, king of Admah, and Shemember, king of Zeboam, and, and, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. So a war is gonna happen between these four sort of kings. One of them, the, the real leader of this guy is, is gonna be named, uh, the main man is, Ch- uh, uh Cherdolarimar. He's the leader. We're gonna see that because he's bringing these armies down with him. And he's bringing four armies with him, and they're coming to fight these five city-states. And uh, what happens was what it is, it's, it's really it's Abram's land is being invaded by these armies and they're coming in there and they're wrecking havoc. So what's going on? Notice verse three. All these came as allies to the Valley of Sidon. That is the salt sea. It's a valley near the Dead Sea. And this is where the battle is going to happen. Can you throw that first map up there for just a second? The uh Yeah, that's the one. In fact, if yeah, let me do this. Down here is the Dead Sea area, and this area is where we think the battle is going to be. Sodom and Gomorrah were in this little region right in here, and and those other little city-states, those four or five, three or four others that they mentioned there, they're all right in that area. These people are coming from way up here, and uh, they're coming down and we're going to see what they do. They're coming down because they're mad about something. We say, well, what is going on? Why are they coming down? Why did they fight? Why did they invade? We haven't seen anything like this before. Well, look at verse 4. It says, 12 years they had served Chedorlarimir, but the 13th year they rebelled. And when it says they served him, most likely he was a strong leader, a strong, had a strong army, and he had come down sometimes and, and mess with these people, and probably they were paying tribute to him. But it says they served him for 12 years, but on the 13th year they rebelled. They didn't send any money back. They didn't send their payment to, you know, and so he says, You're not going to pay, pay me. I'm coming down there to get you. And so the plan is to come down. It says, But in the 13th year, uh, they rebelled. So in the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came down and defeated, and they began to list these places: Rephrodim and Ashtaroth, Kirneem and Zuzim and Ham and Emim and Shebeth, everything. I think there's a, a slide. Is there another slide that lists these? Yeah, they list the beginning. This is near the Sea of Galilee. This is a little bit near the Dead Sea. This is a place south of the Dead Sea. And this is a place way south of the Dead Sea. If you go back to the map, I just want to show you that they start coming down. And this is near the Sea of Galilee. They get one region. Then they come down near the Dead Sea. Then they come down just south of the Dead Sea. And then if you've got the other map, the one that shows the bigger slide, they come way down to here in the Negev to fight these people. So all of these people, they're taken. And then notice the next verse it says, um, the Horites and Mount Seir as far as El Parim, which is the wilderness. Then, verse 7, they turned back and came to M Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered all the country, the Amalekites and the Amorites, who lived in Hazan, Hazan Timor. They, if you go back to the map again, they're coming back up. They they came down, and now they're coming back. If you show the bigger map again, they come back up other one. No. Right there. They come back up, and they're they're taking all this region. Uh, Kadesh is not on the map, but it's right in this area. So they came all the way down, and now they're coming all the way back. They're about to get into this region, and there's going to be a battle now because the kings are going to come out against each other, and we'll see what happens. Notice verse 8. It said... And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sodom. And the valley of Sodom is somewhere near south part by the, the Salt Sea, or we'd say the Dead Sea. They've come out for battle. And it's going to be four kings against five because verse 9 says, And Cherdalarimar, king of Elam and Tidal, king of Goam, and uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, you think, well, if you got five kings and they got four kings, maybe you got an advantage. But Cherdalarimar is, is very powerful. He's already whipped. Place after place, he's come down, he's whipped people here, people here, people here, people here. He's turned back up, he's whipped people here, he's whipped two more people groups, and now he's coming up to these five city-states, five little kingdoms. And when you see he's a king, he's a king, he's a king, they they were city-states. They were little cities, and they were kings of the cities. And they, they really thought they were great. Uh, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and these little places, but here comes the battle. It's fixing to happen. And uh, notice now the valley of Sodom was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Now the battle happens. They line up five kings against four. The kings that uh, of Chedorlaomer, he was uh, obviously they're pretty confident. They have just whipped everybody as they came down the side, and then they've whipped everybody as they came back up. And so he's saying, I'm not worried about these five little city-states. They should have paid me the money that they owe me. That's basically what he's saying. He's coming to collect, and he does a good job. Because in the battle, it said that uh, the... uh, that, that uh, the valley of, of Sidon was full of tar pits and King Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They got, they got defeated. The people began to run off. And they, the ones who survived went up to the hill country and got out of the way. Notice verse 11. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. See, they're saying, if you don't pay me what I owe you, I'll just take all your stuff. And that's what they did. And Now, have you thought about what's Abram doing in all this time? It's not even mentioned. He's not involved. And he's further to the west. And he's hearing about all that's happening. Maybe he knows about the fighting. Maybe he's heard about it. But notice verse 12. This is the key. They also, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was lit- living in Sodom. Now, they took Lot as a captive. Now, as Abram might say, now you're getting personal. You know, because up to this point, he, he says, I could really care less about some of these people because, you know, God has given me this land. I'm living peacefully. I'm living, he's living at the Oaks of Mamre. There's a guy named Mamre there, and he's got two of his sons or brothers or, uh, yeah, brothers. And um, uh, so he, he's fine. But now there's problems. It's gotten personal. Now, you realize how quickly material possessions are gone. Because here's Lot, and he's fairly wealthy, and he moved down to Sodom, and everything looked pretty good, and I'm sure he's wealthy in Sodom, and everything's fine, and suddenly, that's gone. His family's gone, he's been taken off into captivity, and as far as he knows, he won't ever have possessions again. He may be a slave for the rest of his life. So one day, you go from being wealthy to being a slave. And in our lives, we think about, I've got this, and I've got this, you know... Everything we have could burn up just like that. Everything we have could be destroyed in a tornado just like that. I mean, everything that you... you so there's so many things you have that they could break and then never work again. And you go, boy, I had a good radio and it, it, it just quit working. Or my car just won't... it won't work anymore. I mean, things don't last. If you begin to put your happiness in things, they'll be gone before you know it. Material means... Really, material things really mean nothing. You cannot find contentment for material things. Uh, as soon as you get material things, you want more material things. Ecclesiastes 5 talks about that. It says the more you have, the more you want, the more you have, the more you spend. That's just the way it is. So Lot had made choices to live here. And in such a time, he'd gone. Look, Think about it, what, how he had progression. He'd been with Abraham, then they quarreled, then they separated. Now he's near Sodom, now he's in Sodom. And now he's captured with Sodom. So the four kings from the north have a great victory. What do you think they're thinking? They're thinking, nobody can touch us. We got it made. We've whipped everybody. And now we're going back. If you got the map again, just for a second. they're, they're They've whipped, and now they're heading on back. They think they're going on back. We're not sure exactly where they stopped. They, they're going to stop... At a place called Dan is where they 're going to go up that 's way back up here they 're really up here, so they 're stopping about here it 's sort of like listen we 're going to take a little break uh, have a party we 've captured everything we've got all kind of stuff we 're just going to spread it all out. I mean, can you imagine what a big area that they are in i mean we 're talking about a whole bunch of soldiers from five, four different city states plus all the people they 've defeated, all the captives they 've got, all the possessions they 've got. They're, they're pretty much thinking they've got it made. Well, watch what happens. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol and the brother of Anar. These were allies with Abram. Now, somebody escaped. Fugitive came. He escaped from the battle, made it, and he came to tell Abram. Now, one who had escaped the battle comes to let Abram know. Now, notice that Abram is called the Hebrew. Do you remember what Hebrew means? It means one who what? Crosses over. Abram had left the Ur of the Chaldees and crossed over. If you show the big map, the one that's the Fertile Crescent, if you've got that one just for a second, the, the big Fertile Crescent one. There. Abram had been living down here in the Ur of the Chaldees, and he's come up. And he's crossed over. Basically, he's crossed over the rivers. So uh, Hebrew is one who crosses over. So they're saying that they call him, here's the man who crossed over. He crossed over from there to here. And that's why he's called the Hebrew. And uh, that's, they're going to be known that for a long time. In fact, when you think about the Jewish people, they're known three things. They're known as the Hebrews, they're known as the Israelites, and they're known as the Jews. They're known as the Hebrews because they crossed over, and that goes all the way back to Abram. They're known as the Israelites because Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel, and the descendants of Jacob, the twelve tribes, were called Israelites. And then after the, the nation divided into a northern and a southern kingdom, the southern kingdom was, was was Judah, and the people living in Judah were called the Jews living in Judah. So that's why people sometimes call them Jews, sometimes they're called Israelites, sometimes they're called Hebrews. It goes all the way back to all of these things. So a man came, a a fugitive came to Abram the Hebrew, and he was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshgral, and the brother of Anir. And these were allies. Now, the word ally has an idea of a covenant. It doesn't say the word covenant, but it seems like they had an agreement to be with each other. There was a friendship and a protection. That's what you did in those days. That's why you'll see that four kings came together to go fight. That's why the five kings came together to fight against them, is because that you, you by yourself, somebody was much bigger than you. You had no chance. What if you could ally yourself with somebody else? Well, the best thing we can tell is maybe Abram has kind of made friendship and a pack with these people. What will Abram do? Verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his household, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now when he heard about Lot being captive, uh, we might say it this way, he said, Now it's got personal, you've got my family. And even though he would probably say Lot, it's the one that moved over there. Lot is the one that got himself in Sodom, but he is my nephew. He's my brother's son. He's my family and I have the responsibility to protect him. Because if Abram doesn't do something, Lot will probably be a slave the rest of his life. If he lives that long, we don't know. So it said that he, uh, he led his trained men. The word trained men means experienced. Obviously these were men. Trained for fighting. I mean, you think about it. Here's Abram, and he's got 318 fighting men. There's no telling how many people are connected with Abram. I mean, we've already seen that he's rich, and he's got all of these animals, and all these people, and all these family, and everything. I mean, and, and you'd say, well, where where are your family? And he'd say, really, well, it's still just Sarai and me. But i got all these people with me. i got all these people. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks that he's getting older and older and he has no children. And he actually talks to God about it and says, well, I'm assuming that you're just going to let, I have, he has a servant in his household and he assumes that God is going to let that servant be the offspring. He'll say, well, obviously I'm never going to have a real son myself, so I'll let my servant be the one. God says, no, 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 that's not what I told you. See, sometimes we think, well, God said this, but maybe he doesn't really mean it. I mean, I talk to people and I'll say, when you believed in Jesus Christ, what did you get? And they say, eternal life. And you say, so you have life forever with Jesus Christ. Well, I hope I, hope I do. Well, does he mean it or not? Did you get eternal life or not? And how long does it last? He says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Do you believe that or not? When God makes a promise to you, do you believe it or not? That's the bottom line. And the Bible is full of promises to us. And the question is, do we take these as true? Now, here's Abram. He's getting ready to go fight. And he's got these 318 men, and they're going to pursue, and they're going after him. And uh, it, it's very, very powerful to see what happens. This, they're trained men, ready to go. And poor Abram, when, when he comes back, he's going to say, well, I'm still not going to have any kids, I guess. So what happens? Abram heard his relative had been taken captive. This is verse 14. He let out his trained men born in his household. 318, that's a lot. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. he went all the way to the northern part of Israel. And we don't see it here, but both Aner and Eschro went with him. We don't see it, it doesn't say it, but when they get back, they have gone with him to the fight. So they probably took some of their men as well. So Abram's probably got more than 318 men. He's got 318 of his men, but these two brothers also went with him, and they probably took men as well. And so it's going to be a big battle. And watch what happens. They're going to go, how can Abram with 318 men plus whatever guys that these other two guys have, how are they going to whip four kings who have defeated everybody all the way down? And I mean, that's huge now. It's huge. Abram's going to make some choices. The first choice is to go and rescue Lot. The second choice is he's going to have to trust God through the whole thing because, humanly speaking, he doesn't have much of a chance. One of the things that I love about the Old Testament Is how God always gave His people these victories when they trusted Him. And you go all the way to the time of the judges or you go to all these... There's battles where some guys go and they fight 10,000 people and they got 300. And they win. And you'd say, humanly speaking, none of this is possible. But God says, I'm the one that gives the victory. I always give the victory. And for us, thanks be to God who what? Gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ, it's always that way. Well, look what happens, verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night. They came up at night, he and his servants, and it just says, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Well, I want you to understand, they came at night. Now, I am sure that these five kings, or these, excuse me, these four kings, they were not thinking they were going to be attacked, Sometimes you let down your guard. You've just defeated every enemy around there. You're up at the northern part. You're about, you're pretty getting back close to your own land. You feel pretty safe. You're probably having a big party at night. And what does Abram do? They get up there and it says, Abram divided his forces. He said, okay, some of you get on that side, some of you get on that side, some of you get on this side. We're just going to go in there and we're going to get them. And. What happened? They defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobart north of Damascus. They run them all the way out of the land, and they even go go way north, north uh, over Damascus. Wow. God gives the victory. And as we said over and over in our lives, we have to trust him to give the victory because he always gives the victory. If he, and when I say he always gives the victory, when we trust him, he's the one working all things according to the council's will. Not everything turns out the way we want it to turn out, but I guarantee you this, that only in God can we have victory. There's no way. Only, he is the strength and our shield. That, that's it. Who would have thought that Abram and a small group could defeat the four kings who defeated all those others? You realize that with God things are amazing. I remember a couple of things. One is Voltaire. You know, Voltaire, he was anti-Christian and he said he predicted that Christianity would be swept from existence within a hundred years. Well, fifty years after his death, his home became the place of the German Bible Society where they, where they Put Bibles and turn them out. This is the guy who said there won't be any Christianity in 100 years. 50 years later, his house is where the Bibles are. Or in World War II when Hitler had this huge structure in Monte Carlo, which was radio pro, radio uh, Nazi propaganda. Well, after the war, it became Trans World radio and the gospel was spread into Europe, Russia, and Africa. So what was used for bad ended up being for good. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that Abram could defeat this enemy? But victory is always with God. It is his power. It doesn't matter the size of the opposition in our lives. God's going to bring about his plans. Well, look what happens, verse 16. He brought back all the goods, and and he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. They brought everything back. I think it's pretty amazing. They uh, get captured, they're not killed, they're taken off with their possessions. And Abram gets up there and whips the enemy and ends up get bringing back everything that Lot had lost. He brings back his possessions. He brings back his family, the whole thing. And they bring them all back. It's like a new beginning. It starts all over. Now, this is where the choices come. He said he made the choice to go rescue Lot. He made the choice to trust God through the whole thing. And now as he comes back, he's going to be met by two kings. And they are as different as night and day. Each one of them will have something to offer. He's going to be met by one from Salem and one from Sodom. And when you say Salem, Salem is the same as Jerusalem. It's just what Jerusalem was called before it was called Jerusalem. It was called Salem, which means peace. And so they're going to... He's going to be met. One, each, one is going to offer blessing. The other is going to offer possessions. And the kings couldn't be any more different. One is from wicked Sodom. And the other is a king of peace from Jerusalem. We meet first the king of Sodom. And look what it says, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chirithaer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh that is, the king's valley. So the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Why? Because he's got a great victory and he's bringing back all the stuff. He's bringing back all the stuff that was captured from Sodom. He's bringing back people. He's bringing back possessions. So the king of Sodom is very happy. He's saying, this is great. I'm getting all my stuff back. And I'm really thankful to Abram for doing that. So he's going to come out to meet him. And what he's going to offer him, he's going to say, Listen, uh, uh, all this stuff, you can take it. You can take a whole bunch of this stuff. Because uh, you saved my life, you saved my people, you saved all of this. So he's going to offer him possessions. But he's going to also meet another king. And that's the king of Salem. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. Now, I'm just going to touch on this tonight, and we'll go more details next time. But Melchizedek comes out to meet him, and we go, who is this man? Well... Melchizedek is from Jerusalem. Melchizedek is from Salem, which means Jerusalem. And if you notice, Melchizedek is actually two Hebrew names put together. Melech is the word for king. Zadak is the word for righteousness. So it's Melik and it kind of flows together, but it's Melech, Zadak, which is the, Melchizedek, which is the king of righteousness. So there's the king of righteousness from Jerusalem. What does he bring out? bread. And wine. What do you think of when you think of bread and wine? You think of the Lord's Supper. And it was long before the Lord's Supper. This is long before Passover. This is long before any of this. But here it is a priest, and he's not just some priest. He is priest of who? The Most High God. Where did this guy come from? I thought Abram was the one who believed in the true God. I thought it was Abram, Abraham was going to be the one in which God's chosen his people group, the Jewish people as we call them, and Abraham's going to have Isaac, and Isaac's going to have Jacob, and Jacob's going to have the twelve tribes. Isn't this where the information about the Most High God comes from? Not just Abram. You realize there were other people who had believed in the true God? I mean, you got to remember that Adam and Eve are the ones that started this whole thing. And Noah and his family coming off of the ark, they believed in the God Most High. And so, if you think about it, Abram wasn't the only believer in the world. And yet, look at this man. His name is Melchizedek. And he brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. He's a priest. And it's so amazing because we're going to see that uh, he's going to offer blessing to Abram. Now, let me ask you a question. We think Abram's pretty great, don't we? In fact, he's kind of one of our heroes. We say, hey, Abram, he's the man of faith. He's the first Jew. I mean, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob now. But, you know, when somebody blesses somebody, who's the more important one? The one giving out the blessing or the one receiving the blessing? Who, who's the most important usually? the one giving out the blessing guess what Melchizedek's the one giving out the blessing to Abram yeah being a king and a priest very unusual now usually in this in this time period the father of the household was the priest of the family because you remember they they they've not they've not picked one tribe to be the priest and do the things like the Levites did. And so normally in a household, in a family, the father was the head. If you think of the book of Job, Job lived about the same time as Abram. And you remember Job would offer sacrifices for his family just in case one of them had sinned against God. Remember, that's how it says it. So Job was a righteous man and he was a priest of his family. This man is not just called a priest of his family. He's the king of the city, but he's also called a priest of of the most high God or God most high. He's a really unusual person. And a lot of people say, who is this guy? We're going to talk a lot more about him next week. He is a priest of the most high God and what's going on? Who is this man? How does he fit? We find that he is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. There are some people and I do not agree with this, I want to throw this out to you. There's some people who actually believe that Melchizedek is Jesus. Before he became a person. I don't think so. Because I think when you read the book of Hebrews carefully, it says that Melchizedek was like Jesus. It didn't say he was Jesus. It was like him because he's a priest. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about that more a little bit next week. So here comes this man named Melchizedek who seems to be a foreshadow, a type of Jesus Christ. And we'll see the response. Now put yourself in this position. You're Abram. You've just gone and had a great victory. You've saved a whole bunch of people's lives. There's possessions everywhere, and you have a choice. You've got a guy coming out who you despise because you think he's wicked, and he's fixing to offer you a lot of money. You remember in It's a Wonderful Life with Mr. Potter, ordered George, uh, offered George Bailey a job for three years, making $10,000 a year for three years, trips to Europe. You would like that, wouldn't you, George? And and he goes, Well, Mr. Potter, can I go talk to my wife? Sure, sure, I'll go talk to your wife. And he shakes hands, and as he shakes hands, he says, Wait a minute. What am I doing? I know what kind of man you are. I can't make an agreement with you. And we're going to see that Abram is seeing a man who's fixing to offer him a whole bunch of money. And you know, Money looks good even if it's coming from somebody wicked, doesn't it? What's Abram going to do? We'll see. And then what he does with Melchizedek is pretty powerful. We've seen the war. Four kings take uh, take take off Lot. Abr- Abram chooses to trust God and chooses to go after him. God gives the victory. They return. He's met by Sodom, uh, by the king of Sodom and by Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is really a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some applications and then we'll have the Lord's Supper. But the first one is this. Realize we're responsible for the choices that we make. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, today you face choices. Tomorrow you'll face the consequences of the choices that you make. Isn't that something? We think sometimes we do something and nothing matters. Nobody will know. It doesn't affect us. We think, this won't affect me. C.S. Lewis is right. The choices you make today, tomorrow you'll face the consequences of the choices you made today. That's what's going to happen. And when we talk about that we're responsible, listen, it is not society. It is not our background. It is not someone else. We are the one responsible for the choices that we make. So think about this. Where are you seeking blessing? Where do you want blessing? Because Abram's got a choice. Is he going to get blessing from the world or blessing from God? What What Are we seeking The things that are eternal or the things that are temporal. Abram is resting in the promises of God. The second thing is with whom are you identified? The world or the word? I think it's in the the world or the word, the unrighteous or the righteous. I mean, think about it. Abram's got the choice to make. Am I going to identify myself with the king of Sodom or am I going to identify myself with the king of Salem? And every day we have these choices to make. Who are we going to be? connected with. Are we going to be transformed by the Word of God? Or are we going to be conformed by the world? Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. I think it's a very powerful statement. He said, I resolve that all men should live for the glory of God. I resolve that whether others do or not, I will. Think about it. He says, I wish everybody, everybody's supposed to live for God, but let me tell you what, whether they do or not, I am. We want to identify ourselves with the King of all glory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, basing our lives on the Word of God. There's a second application, and that is that God gives the victory. Just remember that. He gives the victory. Trust Him in the events of life. He is the one who uh, possesses the heavens and the earth. He is all-powerful, and He owns, knows every, owns everything. He gives the victory to Abraham. He gives us the victory. That's why I love the verse, first Corinthians 15:57. What does it say? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And He does. And you know that victory is not only eternal life victory, it is victory moment by moment, day after day, as we run the race with endurance looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it is the victory ultimately when Jesus comes in the clouds and we look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. May we live our lives based on God's Word and rest in our great Savior Jesus Christ for. Victory. Let's pray and, and we'll have the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these truths, Lord. We look forward to seeing next week and we see what happens with, with uh, Sodom and what happens with Salem and what happens there when Abram comes back. Lord, we know that every day we make choices. And we know that we are going to live with the consequences of the choices that we make. And so, Lord, we want to make choices that are bringing us more and more like you, that are helping us grow, that are helping others. We want to make choices that, that uh, will have eternal blessing connected with them. Lord, we just ask you that we would be identified with you and we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who gives the victory. Thank you that we rest in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.